Welcome to episode 112 of The Real Photo Show. So, yeah, I know we're all going through some shared experiences and some very different experiences with some of us uh, weathering this okay and some of us who are not weathering this okay. There's been a lot of organizations looking for help and relief, and I know my college has started a student relief fund, which I've given to, but there are Also, quite a few photographer and artist relief funds as well. They're not that hard to find on social media, and you've probably seen quite a few of them. But in particular, I follow the Twitter accounts of Women Photograph, Bronx Documentary Center, and the Center for Photographers of Color, and they've either been hosting or posting about relief funds. So if you are a freelancer or an artist out of work, uh, you should check those out. And if you are someone who's still working and is in a position to give, uh, maybe you could think about that as well, either to an arts organization or the many, many other organizations who are looking for help. Whether it's some local businesses that are not allowed to open their doors, but they're selling future gift certificates, or just helping your neighbor who's run out of toilet paper. All right, so the next three episodes were recorded at the Society of Photographic Education Conference in Houston, Texas, which was, of course, the last time I went anywhere. And first up is John D. Fryer. Uh, So John Fryer is an artist, activist, and professor of cross-disciplinary media at Virginia Commonwealth University School of the Arts. Uh, And we did meet up at SPE just after his panel talk titled We Want Our Pictures Back, which also had Arthur Fields and Graham McIndoe. So John, Arthur, and Graham discussed their journeys through recovery and how that impacted their photographic practices, including the depiction of people with substance abuse disorders and the issues of consent. So from John's bio, uh, he earned his BA from Hamilton College and an MA and MFA from the University of Iowa. His works include his internationally renowned internet project and book, All My Life for Sale, Live Ikea, which I mistakenly called Live Ikea during the show, his national PBS pilot series, Secondhand Stories, his ready-made projects, Walmart.com and Big Boy, and more recently, and what we spend a lot of time on the show with, his free hot coffee bike, which is a concept that John started at VCU with Rams in Recovery, an organization that supports students with a history of addiction. And the bike is literally a vehicle for creating dialogue between people who are in recovery and people who are allies of those in recovery and anyone else who's interested in becoming an ally of those in recovery. So as you listen to this conversation, I think you'll learn that John's projects are incredibly detailed, incredibly well thought out, uh, just so smart, and it was a lot of fun talking to him. Oh, and in case you didn't know, uh, but you were curious about the last name, John is married to Sasha Watersfryer, who created Gary Winogrand, All Things Are Photographable. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you are well, and we will talk soon. Well, my name is John Fryer, and I'm an associate professor of cross-disciplinary media at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. My practice as a photographer and as an artist is an overlap between being an activist and being an artist. And I say that as a, a person who shifted from being an artist slash activist to someone who's really taken the, the activism part of my, my practice and my life and, and, and put it front and center.
that's um, just how I would uh, describe you in, in terms of your work. It's performative, it's activism, it's interactive as well. I mean, it requires, the, the pieces I saw, it requires sure. that people interact sure. with you. Yeah. And so, uh, hi. Hi. <laughs> so, uh, we're at the SPE, Society of Photographic Education Conference, and uh, you, gave, you were part of a, a panel talk. And I'm blanking on the name of the, the talk. It was called uh, We Want Our Pictures Back. That's it. Yeah. And then had a colon and a bunch of words. But it was basically <laughs> We Want Our Pictures Back. And it was a conversation about documentary ethics and specifically tailored to the opiate crisis, the opioid crisis. Right. There was a panel that had uh, a photographer named Graham McIndoe, who's at Parsons the New School, and... Arthur Fields, mm -hmm. who's been a longtime member of SPE and is someone who identifies as in recovery. Right. Uh, and that's something that I also do. The, the panel was of three artists that are in recovery, open about their recovery journeys. And we wanted an opportunity to talk about what it's like to be an artist in recovery, what it's like to be an artist in recovery in, in a in a conference setting, in a professional conference setting, which, you know, if you've read it, um, there's a great article in the uh, January issue of, of Inside Higher Education or the Chronicle, one of those, uh, about professional conferences and people that don't drink. Yeah. And that they can be, it can be pretty hostile for people that don't drink. So people in recovery coming to a conference, it can be a really challenging time. Absolutely. I mean, I, I even... Even in the past couple of days, I've heard a lot of speakers joke about how heavy they've been drinking or how yes. everybody's been staying out late and thank yes. you for making it in the morning, all yes. those things, right? Yes. Yeah. And, the, and those, and the, you know, that's a conversation like that, that's setting a kind of norm for alcohol consumption that actually doesn't track with the vast majority of the people that are attending any given conference. Um, so one of the things when we were um, accepted to do a panel, uh, I reached out to the organizers of the, of the conference and asked them if they would set aside a room for a recovery meeting at the conference. Mm -hmm. So there's a Friends of Bill W meeting, and that's code for AA or NA. People who are in, in recovery would recognize that. It, was it couched like that be, for kind of anonymity or for kind of... Um... It, it's just known, like if you go on a cruise, oh, okay. on a, on, if you're on a cruise ship, you know, pre-COVID, there's there's a meeting called the <laughs> right. Friends of Bill W. And, oh, okay. and anyone who's in recovery knows knows who it. Bill Wilson is. So they're like, oh, that's for me. And they show up. So, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that's something that, that they hosted. And, they, and part of the article in the Chronicle talks about like having a separate alcohol-free bar, which is also something that they're doing here for the first time. And when I announced it, everyone was like... There's an, all the bars are alcohol free. I said, no, 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 no. Just people who don't. Yeah. I mean, if, what will I do? They thought I, had, I, thought I, I, I thought I had truly ruined. That's right. The Society for Photographic <laughs> Education. I'm not interested in doing that. Well, so, so yeah, let's talk. Yeah. You, you want to no, talk? No, you mentioned yeah. the, um, the, the improvement of the, of those things here. And, yes. and, and we were just talking about my first experience at SBA in Chicago and yes. how I was not thrilled with it and, and part of that was just me not knowing sure, what I sure, was doing there sure. you know and but I did feel also like that had a much more party atmosphere back then seven yes. eight years ago yes, yes. Uh, which also made me a little uncomfortable sure and this this conference has not felt like that huh. yeah you know I think part of that and and you know one of the one of, one of my colleagues Jim Stone who teaches at University of New Mexico he was I was talking to him and he was like that little bar <laughs> 
<laughs> at the entrance is not really a bar and certainly not big enough for SPE. So I think what you're rec- what right. you're seeing is actually that there there isn't this giant like I, in Chicago there there, right. there was this huge central bar yes. which which com- was completely and fully occupied all the time of SPE. Right, you know, right. Including during most of the presentations. Of know. course the other thing might be I'm not getting invited to the parties. Oh, but. that's true. That's true too. Yes, there is a certain there's a certain, you know, everybody has their things. Right. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I have a really good friend, Marnie Schindelman, who teaches at University of Georgia, and we very long ago gave up on being invited to anything. So we just, <laughs> we just set a place that we want to go and we go and anyone who shows up is great, but like, we're not waiting for anybody. Right. We're not inviting anybody, right. you know? So I don't know if I'm excluding people right. by, by just going and getting tacos with Marnie or if I'm just doing my own thing. Exactly. You know? so, yeah. Yeah. That's a fine line. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> But, uh, but are people are people saying I didn't get invited to tacos? That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know you, uh, the other yeah. thing that's consistent with creating this sort of a uh, um, environment that's well, to, to, uh, uh, creating an environment that's more welcoming is language, right? Yes. And language came up in the in your presentation. Yes. Yes. The so, idea of referring to a, a person as a, an addict, referring to a person as referring to the drug and not the person, sure, right? Sure. Referring to the addiction and not the sure. person. Right? Yes. Yeah, so, so I'll put my activist hat back on. Uh, and, and, you know, one of the things that's in the conversations about recovery is that we talk about person-centered language. So, you know, frequently there are terms like addicts, junkie, alcoholic, meth head, cokehead, all of those things where, where the drug and the, and the problem is the first thing and then there's a person attached to it. And the way that people professionally now refer to things related to addiction are, is a person with a substance use disorder. So in my talk, one of the things I talked about is, is I put up those stigma-related right. words and ask people to uh, think of an image that they've seen in the last five years that filled that role. And the last phrase I had was a person with a substance use disorder. And, you know, when I think about that, and I'm, I don't know what other people thought, but it's a family member, it's a friend, it's, it's a loved one, it's, it's a colleague, you know, and, and so there's, that person becomes the thing that's important and not, yeah, not, yeah. The, not the addict, you know, and, or whatever, you know, whatever the drug was. Well, you're, you're fighting, you're battling with decades, uh, a century of shame, yes. right? Yes. Uh, associated with it, that it's yes. a failure, a moral that, failure. That it's a moral a failure, failure, which, uh, which right. you know, it's like one of the last kind of moral failures, right? It's right. actually like one of the, one of the last like things that uh, continuous stigma and mm-hmm. shame attached to where it's like, it's the fault of their own, you know? I mean, when we're, when we're talking about the opioid crisis and we're thinking about the images that are being made of it, you know, there are people that are making images around it that they're working with people that are in recovery and they're sensitive to the things that are going on. There's a really fantastic film called Recovery Boys and also Heroin, which which really sensitively talks about the issue in a 360 and full encompassing kind of way that respects the people that are that are in the process and, and details people uh, coming into recovery and also going out of recovery. You know, all of these these illnesses are recurring and, you know, this return to use happens uh, frequently until mm-hmm. someone gets sober for good, if possible. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so thinking about those images, 
there are good ones and then there are terrible ones. Yeah. And there are terrible ones, you know, that are really feeding into the st existing stereotypes. And, and, you know, obviously like Time Magazine and James Knockway's photographs with needles coming out of the neck and all of this stuff. Like, yes, you know what? You can find that. Yeah. 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 You can find that. It doesn't that. mean you have to make that photo. Yeah. It, right? it doesn't mean you have to make yeah. that photo. And ac actually, if you spent more time, you would know the person and you would be reluctant I mean, one would be reluctant to, to, I mean, you basically, you're photographing somebody at the lowest point in their life, yeah, right? A, like a nobody. five minute snapshot yeah. at best, and, right? And, and, you know, the thing that I, I think I can't stress enough is that a person who is in the throes of their addiction, they're not having fun, right? Like someone who is dope sick is seeking heroin or opioids so that they stop withdrawals. And that's not a place that anybody wants to be in. That's not a place that they chose to be in. You know, it yeah. happened to them. And I work, so, so part of the activism piece of me is, so, so I, I teach at Virginia Commonwealth University. My training is in photography. I have an MFA in photography from the University of Iowa. And I entered recovery in May of 2013, just after I was hired at Virginia Commonwealth University. Oh, wow. And my position had not started yet. Mm -hmm. So I started my position in the fall and I, and I got sober in May. And I was a person that openly identified as a person who was in recovery almost from, almost from the beginning. Uh, my previous projects, my, my MFA project at Iowa was called All My Life for Sale, where I sold off all, everything I owned on the internet auction site eBay and traveled around the country visiting people who bought stuff from me. So, you know, my, my life has always been kind of an open book. Mm -hmm. So like when I got sober, you know, I just continued on, on that path. That almost sounds like a part of a 12 step process where you're reaching out to people, yeah. right? Yeah. But, yeah. 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 I mean, it, yeah. It, it, there's, I look back now at things I have, you know, that I did in active use or, you know, prior to getting sober and I see, you know, I see the things building and building until right. the crisis. So, but anyways, my, my, when I first started, I was openly identifying as a person who was in recovery and, and recovery is a hidden identity. So we have a lot of overlap with LGBTQIA in that, in that, you know, lots of people who are in recovery and, and certainly in 12 step programs that are anonymous, you know, are instructed by the people that are supporting them to, to leave that, mm -hmm. you know. If that's a need to know basis. You don't talk about yeah. it. You don't it's, talk about the program. Yeah, right. it, it's a need to know basis, and you can you can disclose things when it's useful for another person who's sick and suffering, but you don't need to bring that out into the. But that whole thing that's that's changed quite a bit. It's changed a bit with social media, and also changed a lot because of young people getting sober. Right. So I work at vcu and they have a collegiate recovery program which is a program that does direct supports for students that are in recovery from substance use disorders and they they host meetings and they take them on they're they're, they're just heading today on a sober spring break uh where they've meeting they're meeting with six other colleges that are going to the same town it's like the the, the community there like the the town wants that group of college students to come every year mm -hmm. because they leave it you know they probably leave it better than when they arrived right so, yeah, so I've learned, you know, so with, with young people in recovery, they, they talk about it. And also, there's a lot of people that are in recovery from, from opioids. And they, you know, their use of opioids came from pain pills. Uh, you know, so, if, you know, a football player who's playing through an injury gets a 30-day supply of high-octane mm -hmm. Oxycontin. 
needs it for six days and then has these pills that are worth a hundred dollars on the street and can yep. get it refilled and you're there's an incentive there that like well it gets people to use the gets incentive to sale of, for you know. profit with opioids was uh, much bigger than even that than, i mean that, yeah, yeah much yeah. bigger than <laughs> much bigger than a high school football player exactly for sure. i mean yeah that system was set yeah. up yeah. yeah yeah so so with that these kids it really is no fault of their own right like, like there's there's like they all got yeah i mean there's a reasons and pressures including genetic by yeah, the way right of course yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah so you know if the thing about oxycontin and those pain pills they're heroin they're morphine so like of course yeah so <laughs> would you would you think it would be a great idea to give someone a 90 day supply of morphine right and which is what they were doing yeah. and they knew they were doing yeah. it you know yeah. i um I always uh, try to avoid the the most the, the strongest you know med- pain killing medications and things like that for as long as I could, and then I had double hernia surgery. Yes, and uh, and I took some form of oxycontin. I don't sure. remember what it was. And, yeah. Oxy- oh my god, it felt amazing, yes. and I was like, that's frightening. I was like, that pain just went away. I was in such euphoria, yeah, like I'd never yeah. experienced, yeah. Uh, and it was, you know, I could see it. I could see yes. the appeal. I could yes. feel it. And yes. that was frightening. Well, there's a there's a dentist, the, the person who's the head of dentistry at VCU Medical is Dr. Ababacher. And he lost his son to an opiate overdose mm. and, you know, took a sabbatical and enrolled in a an addiction studies program that VCU offers with King's College in Adelaide in Australia. And he returned to the school of dentistry and he radically changed their prescribing methods mm. where they may have prescribed a 30 day supply of something to somebody, you know, with, in many ways, the intent is to not have to see that person again. Right. Right. And so he, uh, in one year shifted it from 30 days to seven and not a single person, not a single patient asked for more. Ah, wow. So they've made it five. They didn't deprive anyone of anything. Yeah, so right. people, people dealt with their pain. And what, meanwhile, like people who had 30-day supplies were treating these Oxycontin pills like, like antibiotics. Right. And taking them as prescribed. Because they're there, and I was told to take them yeah. and keep taking yeah. them. And yeah. 30 days, if you're predisposed Jesus. to addiction, yeah. you know, oh. is, is enough. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think we've talked for about twenty minutes, and <laughs> I don't think I've said anything about my yes. uh, my practice because about... the activist piece, as I said, is has well, become a front and center for I what I do. I think it is important to to set up the foundation of the work, sure, and the importance of the work, and sure. why it's done a certain way, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, let's talk about what you showed at the the panel, which. I thought was fantastic, especially the uh, the, the two bicycles. The- yeah, so the, so I have a couple bicycle projects, and the first one is called the Free Hot Coffee Bike, and it's a, a Worksman's Cycle tricycle, uh, which used to be made in New York, and I think they're they've moved to South Carolina, and it's and it's the bike that all the good humor ice cream bikes are built on. So we built a, a cedar road case, which opens up. And the bike is designed to create space for people to be in conversation. We make coffee in the pour-over method, which takes three to five minutes to make a cup. And we have blue camp cups that are magnetically attached to the lid so that you can't take the cup away. And the bike itself is operated by people that are in recovery 
or their allies. And, mm. and allyship has become a really important part of the advocacy that I do, because I think the more people get involved and the more people who know what resources are available, the better the, we, we talk about something called recovery capital. So by building allies and making people aware of what the resources are, if somebody is presenting with a substance use disorder, and it might be it might be mild. They would know what the resources are, and maybe that person doesn't have to be on the street and have this incredibly low bottom and bottom out mm-hmm. before they get help. Because somebody might say, "Hey, you know what? This is here are some resources. There, there are some people you can talk to, and you know they may may be able to do things and 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 get out of that hole." So so that coffee bike goes around uh, Richmond, Virginia, and. We also have hand grinders. So oh, like wow. when people come up to the bike, that's a beautiful bike. People see it and they're like, oh, I want a cup of coffee. And you say, do you mind grinding for the next person? Oh, okay. And, and that becomes a filter because some people are in a hurry and they want a cup of coffee to go and they think you're a Starbucks and right. we're not. You're just handing it out. Yeah. Right, right. And so like the people that are willing to stay are people that have time to talk. And, you know, we... There's no, there's no script mm-hmm. for what people should talk about. It's just the, that people know that it's a, a partnership between the School of the Arts and Ransom Recovery, which is the collegiate recovery program, that the bike is operated by people in recovery and their allies. It engenders a kind of conversation. Yeah. So is people, anything recorded? or We don't record anything. Yeah. Yeah, we don't record anything because... How do you usually document? Just some still photos and pre-setup? Kind of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, we we certainly document out when we're out in public. Where mm-hmm. We photograph, uh, right. but the conversations are not documented in any way. Yeah, um, makes sense. But, but what ends up happening is we hear a lot of people's story, and they say that they say that one in five people in the United States have been affected by addiction in some way, shape, or form with a family member or themselves or you know a friend or or, or so on. And, you know, in my experience, it's five out of five. Oh, wow. And maybe that's because it's the people have self-selected to stop at the bike. Mm-hmm. But oh. almost anyone, I think, I think almost anyone in your listenership can think of somebody yeah. that's been affected by I addiction. I have three in my family. Yeah. I can think of yeah. right off the top of yeah. my head. Right? Yeah. So, so that project, you know, started in Richmond. And I think I mentioned Marnie Schindleman. Uh, she invited me as a visiting artist to University of Georgia. And University of Georgia has a collegiate recovery program. So we brought the coffee bike down there. And so one of the things that happens on the coffee bike is that we serve a custom roasted coffee called Recovery Roast. Mm -hmm. In Richmond, we work with Lamplighter Roasting Company. And we brought a bunch of people who were in recovery and their allies to taste all these coffees from around (laughs) the world. And then they made a custom roasted coffee specifically for us, according to our taste profile. A custom blend. Yeah, custom blend. So we've now, there's 10 editions of Recovery Roast around the world. Wow. Uh, We've done it at Thousand Faces in Athens, Georgia. Mm -hmm. Uh, We did it at Georgia Tech. Uh, We did it at the Liverpool Biennial Fringe uh, with Neighborhood Coffee. And then in 2018, we were invited to be part of the Tate Exchange at Tate Modern. Wow. And Tate actually has their own coffee roaster <laughs> so we had a custom edition of of uh yeah it's at it's at it's at um tate britain it's, wow. it, it's in a bomb shelter from world war ii <laughs> and they have a fantastic program of of working with women-owned uh coffee cooperatives so mm-hmm. that particular blend of coffee was f- from three women-owned cooperatives and each coffee tastes completely different 
That's amazing. Right, because yeah. it's a different it's a different roaster. Different roast, yeah, yeah. It's a different, different sources. Different, yeah, 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 yeah. And and uh, people, you know, people have asked me about like this. What was the origin of the coffee? And when I walked into my first recovery meeting, I was handed a styrofoam cup of the worst coffee I've ever tasted in my entire life. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and and I volunteered to make coffee because the coffee was, was terrible. So bad. <laughs> and and you know, I made one of those big fifty. 50 cup pots right with right. like the big percolator pot the big, of, yeah. of coffee that i liked whatever yeah. it was at the time right and you know an old timer took a sip of this coffee that i thought was amazing he was like who made the goddamn coffee <laughs> it's probably and too strong it was too strong right? and yeah, terrible yeah. so so you know uh there i was you know in early recovery knowing nothing about recovery trying to change right. and correct what they, what were, they doing, were doing, <laughs> uh, which didn't make a lot of sense. But three years later in my recovery was when we came up with Recovery Roast. And that was, you know, talking to people in recovery. And one phenomenon with the way that coffee is roasted now is that most, most like third wave coffee roasters roast like a light to medium roast because they're getting coffee from around the world. And yeah. if you, if you roast it dark, yeah. Uh, you end up taking all the flavor away. with the same coffee, yeah. no matter where it comes yeah. from. So, yeah. so uh, I, I, I find that the coffee has been to increase or decrease strength. Now they just grind it more finely yeah. instead yeah. of over roasting it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one thing is that the, almost all the coffee, all, all the recovery roasts that we've done, are in this medium to you know, medium roast space, which actually tastes a little bit like meeting coffee except not terrible <laughs> right. you know they're it's right. not dark with, it's, with you know, good flavor right, yeah it's right, good right. flavor so uh <laughs> you know it's it, it, in some ways uh my time in sobriety and then also the evolution of this third wave coffee had a perfect nexus yeah. and and the other component of of medium medium roasts is that they're very high in caffeine which people in recovery love. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. And then you also did the um, the uh, Narcon bike, right? Yeah, so the, the bike that we just launched. So, mm -hmm. you know, one thing with the, with the coffee bike is that we make, you know, it's all about these individual, individual conversations, but we right. also do direct advocacy. So um, we've taken it to the the state capitol a number of times as, at crucial times when they were debating Good Samaritan laws for administration of, of Narcan and Naloxone and uh, a Medicaid expansion, which, which, you know, allowed people to enter treatment, all these kinds of things. And, you know, so we go make a bunch of coffee, talk about the experience of young people in recovery, put a face to the things that they're debating in the state house. And so Rams are recovery in the last year and a half uh, has had an AmeriCorps grant, and that has allowed them to start doing Narcan and Naloxone training on campus. Mm. And they've trained upwards of a thousand students and handed out, I guess, two thousand doses of Narcan. Wow! So you know that's exponentially expanded the the network of people that could revive somebody from an overdose, which which, which is what Narcan and right. Naloxone can do. And working with them, I wanted to build a new bike. <laughs> <laughs> so we've we started calling it the free Narcan bike, but Narcan is a brand. Yes. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So Nar, you know, That's the company right. the company that makes Narcan could say, uh, so it's it, we call it the free naloxone bike, or at least that's what we laser etched into the to the side of the bike. I still call it the so free Narcan bike. That's the bike. chemical name. Yeah, that's right, the chemical right. name. Right, right. And so, like again, in the in the conversation of of the activist piece. 
I became a, in order to, to train and, and distribute, I had to become a, a member of the Richmond City Medical Reserve. And they're one of our project partners, along with the Department of, of Behavioral Health and Services. I mean, mm. so the, like there's, there's, there's a lot of science parts that are yeah. there and, and public health parts that are part of this and the art school. And yeah, so there's a cedar box on the front that's laser etched that says free naloxone bike and has our sponsors and it's a locking box and that was required by because because technically uh, naloxone is a prescription so it right. has to be locked and the paperwork that people have to fill out becomes HIPAA protected yes yes so uh, so we built that and and then we built essentially a little sled on the back of the bike that is big enough for a CPR dummy. Oh, wow. And I have an inflatable CPR mannequin that we call Manny Fresh. <laughs> and it goes, we basically go out into the community and I can do what takes five to 10 minutes of training and distribute naloxone. So we launched it at a big art event, art and health event, trained a bunch of people that probably won't need it. And then we brought it to uh, Virginia Tech, trained some people. And then uh, just before I came here, I went to a morning recovery meeting uh, and there were a bunch of people that were living in sober living houses. They were just come out of treatment and they were in that tra transition space. Right. And in that, there's a lot of lots of different personalities and people and, and you know, that's a common time that people return to use. And so there's now, you know, 20 doses of Narcan that oh, you are, did some training. While we did, we, yeah. So yeah, we did yeah. the training and distribution just oh, outside. Wow. I mean, I wrote, yeah. we, you know, I didn't do it inside the meeting, outside the meeting, people were exiting oh. and you know, we, what we, is, is it a certification? It's not a certificate. I mean, uh, I'm, I've been trained to do revive training and then also the street training. Mm -hmm. uh, so I have, you know, I have certification and I, I now have authorization to be able to train anywhere in the state of Virginia. But for them, they just need to initial that they were told about what Narcan is, how it's used, uh, how to administer it, okay. and and you know what the steps are. Wow. So yeah, yeah, I just do I just do you know it's five to ten minutes. We talk about uh, what common opiates are. This is about getting Narcan into the hands of people that would be near people that might be using, right. right? So that's the classic harm reduction strategy. It's one thing, obviously, like first responders, police police, and, and EMTs having Narcan, great, but they're not the people that are gonna first yeah. connect to somebody who's an overdose. It's the people who, who will are people that are also using with them. So you had to, uh, you were part of a lobby uh, group uh, with Governor McAuliffe at one point to to reduce the liability of people well, who so would in, do this? In, and... in, in Virginia, there's a Good Samaritan law, mm -hmm. uh, which allows, so if you were to administer Narcan uh, and, and the person was not revived and passed away, you could not be held liable for mm. administering that Narcan. Okay. The other piece is a safe reporting law. And that's something that we're watching very carefully because it's passed both the House and Senate and the governor, hopefully we'll get to the governor's signature without being laden down. But right. the first edition of it was that if you were to report, if you were to administer naloxone to somebody and call 911 and stay with the victim until 911 arrived, if, if the police found paraphernalia on you or possession, you could use an affirmative defense, mm -hmm. which would allow 
you to say to the judge, the only reason they found that material is because I did the right thing and stayed. Right. And that, that particular charge could be thrown out. Right. But if you were the victim, you could be charged with possession for it being in your body. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, so the, the legislation that they're debating right now would make safe reporting uh, also for the victim so that right. w w you know what you don't want to do is have somebody hesitate to get to call. help. Right, right, right. So, right. you know, because, and, and people are like, oh, well, that, if they get charged, then they could go through drug court and, and they could be reprimand, you know, remanded to treatment. And like, that assumes that that person is alive. Yeah, right. So, you know, if, yeah, yeah. You can't, you can't charge somebody who is dead. And that's just Virginia. So and that, and every state Virginia. is probably every, different, Every right? state is different, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. State to state, like it's something that, uh, you know, if we bring the Narcan bike, like bringing the coffee bike anywhere is fine because mm -hmm. we're yeah. just making coffee. <laughs> Not illegal, uh, right. And, and, and actually with, you know, I'm connected to a statewide grant that's expanding collegiate recovery across the Commonwealth of Virginia. And the schools that I'm visiting with, I'm bringing the coffee bike, but I also want to bring the, the Narcan bike. Mm -hmm. And, you know, different departments of public safety are saying, well, I, I don't think we want that to be here. Yeah, it reminds and, me a little bit of the when needle exchange started. Yes. Right? And and and, yeah. and needle exchange is still something and that's another piece of this of this current bill, which would allow that to happen without without having to have local people decide whether or not that's appropriate. Right. So yeah. Yeah. So needle exchange, obviously, in New York is something that's, that's very common. It's not common in the broader United States. Yeah. And it's yeah. a conversation again, because uh, Vice President Pence was just put in charge of uh, coronavirus. Yes. And he has his own history with needle exchange uh, in yes. Indiana yes. and HIV and yes. allowing right that yes. to uh, explode more than uh, yes. it should I have. Mean, right. I mean, harm reduction is really about helping that person not die. Right. And if you can keep them alive long enough in, in their use, mm. then, you know, when, when someone comes into a needle exchange, there are services that are available. There are people that are in recovery that have experienced that kind of addiction who can say, you know what, there is a different way. There's a better way. I've, I've gotten out of this, you know, when you're ready. Right. Not saying you need to do it now. We're not going to keep you here. That's right. right. But when you're ready here's where you can go and here's the help that you can get and here right. are the resources. And and that is also, you know, the the conceptual idea of the the coffee bike is just it's creating this conversation exactly. And, and no it's, pressure. It, it's, We're just sharing coffee and talking. It's yeah. it and it really is it's about creating recovery capital. So, you know, by by shifting the language to substance use disorders and away from stigma related language, you're internalizing that as a person and Anytime I'm talking about addiction, I always put in a person with a substance use disorder, as long as that is, right. because you, you know, I have to use it in my practice, and, and in doing so, it sets the tone. Yeah, it's the power and of words. It's, yeah, it's the, the power tone. of words. Yeah, exactly. And that's recovery capital. The more people that know what the resources are, uh, you know, what to do. We, we do training at, at VCU that's called recovery ally training. And it's for students, faculty, and staff to like learn about substance use disorders. And we talk about the shifting language, but we also talk about how to deal with different things that present uh, themselves in our classroom. Mm -hmm. And I'm a 
person who's been teaching in art schools uh, for 20 years. And uh, so when I took the training, the scenario of the small group I was in was somebody coming into uh, a classroom drunk or high. And what do you do? Yes. And, you know, as an educator and as somebody who was a big drinker and, you know, I would generally ignore it and, and hope it went away. I've done, I've had several scenarios. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 And what I learned was that that's an opportunity and there's a health and safety. So you don't have to get all moral about it. Like you cannot participate in this class in an inebriated state. So I've I, done that. Yeah. I want you, I want yeah. you to leave. Yeah. And, yeah. and you can't come back like this again. And if you do, like mm-hmm. you won't be allowed in the class to participate. And, and if you can't, like not come to class this way, then here are what the resources are that are available. Right. And I'm, I'm happy to walk you to Rams and Recovery so you can meet Tom, the coordinator, and you know you can talk to him about it. But yeah. like what's acceptable in this classroom is that people, we're doing serious work here. Your, your BFA is important, your MFA is important, and we're having intellectually significant conversations. And right. if you're impaired, you can't participate and you're wasting our time. So. This was about 18 years ago. I've been teaching about 20 years as well, five years adjunct. And I did the first part of that. Can't come like this. I didn't have the second part. Yes. This is what some help, you know, these are people you could talk to. This is some places you could go. Yes. And I felt like I handled it all wrong. I mean, I I think I I destroyed the, the, that teacher student relationship at that point. Right. And that, I think that person felt shame. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I didn't do it in front of anyone. I did it privately. Yes. That was not, I don't think that was helpful. Yeah. And, and it is, you're having a, I mean, obviously as someone in recovery myself, like I have that conversation in a space of knowing, but as a recovery ally, like to know what the problems are and the resources are is like, you know, you don't need to be in recovery to know like what the resources are. Right. And there could be someone who's far in their addiction and like they might have a, you know, a severe uh, substance use disorder, but they might have a mild one. Right. 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 And the the simple act of walking them over to a place that is available to them, you know, that might be the wake up call mm-hmm. that like shifts the things that they're doing or, all right, well, I won't be going out like this anymore. And, you know, they might not be in an abstinence recovery program, but they may have just changed their patterns so that they don't end up there. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah the, the second incident I had was somebody was using their their addiction to prescription uh, prescription drugs as part of their documentary work. Yes, yes. And that was a tougher navigation because yes. they're doing personal work that for the class, but yes. also revealing yes. that they need help. Yes. And so, but at least I was more prepared for that. Yeah, and I've had resources. I, I've had that a number of times mm-hmm. where, again, my experience in recovery, I can sit down and say, you know, here's my experience and this work is about it's it's pretty dark and you're talking about something that's really dark and you feel it as darkness and i think it's important for you to express it but mm-hmm. like this isn't the end all be all of things in in your world and in your life yeah and then so. the, the third instance i had I actually had to report someone because they were harming themselves yes yes and that person got very angry at me yes. but it, i had to do it yeah and where do you teach Mercer County Community oh, yeah, College. Perfect. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. so, you, you know, Rut- Rutgers okay. has one of the longest-running collegiate recovery programs oh, in I didn't the know country. That. 
Oh. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Well, we didn't even have a full-time counselor yes. in the second instance. Yes. The first instance was actually at Columbia University. But yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, the second was uh, Mercer, and third third was Mercer, and then we had, had a full-time person at that point. Yeah. You know, we've been trying so hard to get into community colleges, oh. and, and they're really reluctant. Oh, wow. I, it's so surprising. Because we, I feel like, uh, it, maybe it's toned down a little bit, but there was a period of about five years where... There was so much prescription drug abuse we felt like was happening and, yeah. and would bubble up here yeah. and there. And, yeah. you know, when I was advising the college paper, co-advising the college paper, we did a story on it and we were not lacking for students. For, yeah, students yeah. who, who were, were part of that. Yeah, yeah. that's, it's, yeah, it's surprising. We, you know, a lot of collegiate recovery programs, we, we get a lot of transfer students. Mm-hmm. Right, because it's someone who's gone to school and washed out, and you know, gotten to recovery, right. then go back to a community school, community college, and and get their two year, and then they apply to VCU. Oh, okay. And and it makes it makes for our students to being like the kids that are at Ramsey Recovery are fantastic. They're on the dean's list. You know, they're yeah. they're really driven and focused because they missed a portion of their of their uh, younger years and yeah. now they're they're returning with purpose and that population and that organization and that awareness also allows for people to be allies yes right i yes. mean it just grows the, it the whole environment it does. and yeah. and you know and again the reason i was roped into this whole activism piece was because i identified as a person in recovery the person who was directing the wellness center like beelined for me, <laughs> grabbed my my shirt and said, you're coming with me and I'm going to show every student in recovery at VCU that there's a faculty member in recovery who talks about it. Exactly. And right. uh, we're starting this this recovery program and, and we want you to be part of it. So That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So why don't we shift gears a little bit? Sure, did, sure, sure. Did you grow up in Iowa? No, no, no. I, I grew up in Syracuse, New York. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in Syracuse, New York. I did mm-hmm. my undergrad work at a liberal arts school named Hamilton College mm-hmm. in upstate New York outside of Utica. And yeah. uh, my first job outside of, of college was I worked as the, the lab manager at Lightwork. You know, I haven't had people talk about Lightwork in a while. How are they doing? Lightwork is, is thriving. So oh, Lightwork okay. is, uh, you know, it's still at Syracuse University. Uh, they've got, they still have, uh, you know, this award-winning publication called Contact Sheet. Mm. They have uh, a resident. reconnect. They yeah. have a, they have a residency program, yeah. uh, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In fact, uh, my own experience and crisis that led to my sobriety happened when I was a visiting artist at Lightwork. Oh wow! Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Then you you said you did your uh, your MFA at. So my MFA was at the University of Iowa. Okay, and that's uh, what brought you out to Iowa. And that brought me right. out to Iowa and uh, my mentor there was Margaret Stratton, mm-hmm. who's a fantastic photographer and she was a resident at Lightwork oh. and recruited me to come out to the middle of nowhere. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then I lived there for, I met my wife there, Sasha Waters Fryer now. Yes. Uh, and uh, we lived there for 13 years. Yeah, yeah so what year was that? Uh, I moved there in 1999, okay. and then Sasha arrived in the fall of 2000. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Sasha would, and I went to the School of Visual yeah. Arts and together. Yes. And she, uh, I was in the process of starting this project, All My Life for Sale, mm-hmm. and uh, she made a radio documentary about me. Oh, wow. Uh, that was on NPR. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. So, 
you know? that was a collaboration yeah right I, I was uh, yeah. I was her uh, her her subject matter <laughs> and then boyfriend uh, and she was faculty in the cinema program right and I was a grad student in the art program so oh, okay. we like to joke around that that I was her grad student That's right. but <laughs> but those rumors are untrue That's right <laughs> and then um, the two of you, Uh, Got married and had children while still in Iowa, right? We did. So we have two daughters that are native Iowans. Yeah. And in 2012 or 2013, we moved to Richmond, Virginia. And that was for work. And that was for work. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Now our daughters are are Virginians. (laughs) Have they developed uh, any kind of accents? No, there's no real accent in the city of Virginia. Yeah. But but we have fond uh, and and extensive ties to Iowa still. I know. uh, You go back almost every summer, right? Every summer we go back and and hang out with our friends. Yeah. I actually had this really weird experience where uh, I had, when I was first sober and returned to Iowa, I went to a recovery meeting and I knew almost every person there. Oh, wow. Yeah. Huh. And it was like, oh, I remember when you had a DUI and then you disappeared. <laughs> and I remember when you fell down the stairs at the Poxhead and then I never saw you again. Oh, wow. And it turns out they were, uh, you know, sober yeah yeah and living happily productive lives and they didn't need to be at uh at george's bar until Mm -hmm. two in the morning uh seven days a week right (laughs) (laughs) so did you did you grow up with art did you grow up with creative parents or was that a a new path uh for you no my uh i i grew up in a house that was my father was an attorney and my mother was an artist. Oh, okay. And when I went to Hamilton College, I was a, a political science major or government major and an art minor. Oh, okay. So there was the safety. Yeah. There was always <laughs> there was always like something there. And then as I departed, uh, the, the, the really the, the thing I wanted to be mm-hmm. and work towards was to be a working artist. Yeah. And there was nothing better than than being the lab manager at Lightwork mm-hmm. to see all the different examples of the ways that photographers can can be in the world from, you know, we've had residents that were, uh, you know, commercial photographers in the UK who had an art practice to people who ran labs mm-hmm. in D.C., Right. Who, uh, you know, had these great, you know, had this great photographic practice to uh, people that taught in the tenure track. So a whole variety of examples of ways to exist as an artist. And yeah, yeah. And it inspired me to uh, pursue my MFA. Mm. You know, you just made me think of something when Sasha and I were in school together. I was... I worked uh, a lot of hours in the equipment room. We called it yes. the cage. Yeah, the cage. Yeah, of and course. I wonder if she looks back at that and, and thinks I was a dick or not because I because uh, you had to manage the cage. Because it was, yeah. you know, I, I there was an atmosphere in that uh, sort of groupthink atmosphere yeah. that you know students were uh, you were there to serve the students, but they were also bothering you at the yeah. same time. Yes. And, and yes. I, I, re- I kind of re- I regret some of that, but yeah. I want, I wonder if she has an impression of me from I those times. I, I should talk I, to her about that. I don't know. I mean, I think <laughs> I think uh, you know the most important thing for a cage manager is to make sure everything works. Yeah, and comes back and comes back. Right. <laughs> so so other, where's the yes. lens cap? That's you know, right. Because <laughs> you know, I know a lens cap is only five dollars. It's a pain but, in the ass. But a hundred yeah. lost lens caps. Yeah. add up. So when you made that decision, your parents were supportive and all. And yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, there's a moment in my book, all, the, the All My Life for Sale book, where there's, you know, I sold all these different objects, and one of the objects I sold was this handmade book 
that I made and gave to my father. Mm. And, you know, like six years later, he was like, oh, I, I found this. Is this yours? And gave it back to me. You know? <laughs> All right. So a little disconnect there. And it was, yes. <laughs> I, I think it was, I think it was uh, like, it was addressed to him. It had a note. <laughs> But our names were both John, so you know <laughs> just, he could have thought I was writing. It a was note just to for myself. you, right? right. <laughs> I once gave, um, I once gave a, uh, I print a bunch of cards for people yeah. in the holidays, and yeah. I and I gave I gave one to a faculty member once, and it came back in my mailbox with a thank you on it. Yeah, like yeah. thank you, yeah. but yeah, like I don't want this. <laughs> I mean, my my father's perspective uh was there was a there was an article in 2001 i think about a, a bunch of different artists that were working in the marketplace there was a fantastic artist who's in new york named michael mandyberg uh and i was doing all my life for sale he had shop mandyberg so there was an article mm -hmm. um my dad would say i don't know what he does but the new york times called it art so i guess it is <laughs> you know so that was the praise i got for that right and, you okay know, he just let me do he let me do you know yeah i did what i did yeah, yeah. And uh, of course, then issues with addiction and sobriety and all that must have been uh, tough with the uh, parents and admitting yeah, it and I mean, everything. Yeah, yeah. And they, uh, you know, they experienced me in chaos and they were happy to see whatever it took to, to not be in chaos. So, yeah. So let's move on to uh, another piece you did called sure. Live IKEA. Oh, Live IKEA. Yeah. yeah. So I, um, I did, I had a Fulbright. Uh, fellowship uh, in Stockholm, Sweden. Mm -hmm. And I collaborated with a social anthropologist named Johan Lindquist. And we did a project that was looking at Ikea specifically through the lens of one object. Mm -hmm. Because Amalai for Sale was all about individual objects and their history. So we wanted to look at this big multinational corporation through the lens of like an iconic object. And the object we chose was the Billy Bookcase. Oh yeah. Which, if you have any photography, I have book, two of them. Yes, and uh, uh, <laughs> you got to make sure that you put your photography books on the bottom That's shelf right. uh, because they sag. They sag a yes, lot. Yes. yes. So <laughs> we so, all got those. Yes. Yeah. So we spent, uh, and it's and it's the most numerous like individual piece of furniture. Uh, that Ikea makes. It's been, it's, I don't know, there's like millions and millions and millions of them. Yes. And and you can't move them. I don't know if you've ever tried to move them, but. You have to take them apart. You have to take them yeah, apart. Yeah, because I moved with them. Yeah. And, and yeah, and it's they. It's hard to get them back together. And Yeah, they get damaged and the yeah. veneer yeah. peels yeah. off and everything yeah. else. Yeah. yeah. So we, we did this project. We taught a class with artists and anthropologists. And uh, we had people, like the first day of class, we handed them a hundred Swedish kroner and paired them up into pairs and and told them to go to go to ikea and buy a bookcase and bring it back to the studio uh -huh. which the following class we met and they assembled oh. all of the bookcases <laughs> so that was the class you know so we essentially <laughs> built a classroom inside the studio oh that's wild um and yeah so we we did this research and we uh one of our students that we basically we people inventoried bookcases around Sweden and almost every Swedish home has a Billy bookcase. Mm -hmm. And then <laughs> we came back and at the end of the class we we took the the research that we did and we tried to apply it to making sculptures from the bookcases that we bought. And the big I think the big uh, reveal from our from our research is we had this big press release that Stockholm University sent out mm -hmm. uh, that said that Swedish nice. research yeah. that Swedish researchers uh, 
uh, had discovered the golden shelf, which is the the fourth shelf on a Billy bookcase. Oh, that's locked in. Uh, and, no, it's the one bef- oh, above oh, it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, but it's the one that's at eye level. Oh. And our researchers determined that that's where people held their identity aspirations. Because you'd walk into wild. a house and you would see. And then we applied the golden ratio of book design to the Billy bookcase. And there's a spot that we called the golden object, which was via Fibonacci sequence. Yes, yeah, yeah. You know, almost a third of the way over, but you, you couldn't be exact. Uh, and I was explaining this to a, a friend of mine, Chris Offit, who's a, a writer from, from Kentucky. Uh-huh. And I'm explaining to him via Skype. And he's like, that is total bullshit. <laughs> and I was like, dude. Go, go look. It, yeah. I said, dude, what is that blue book behind you? Because right. that's, that's your golden object. And it was it, special. <laughs> it, it was so Chris Offit is like from Kentucky and he's a writer from Kentucky and it was uh, an ethnography of uh, Kentucky mountain men uh-huh. and I was like there you go there you go <laughs> it's so, math it's so, simple math <laughs> so so live Ikea or live Ikea okay. uh, was yeah. came out of that oh, and is it is it, is it it's, live it's, it's it is live Ikea okay I thought it, it referred to these sort of like conversations you were having in the room oh, okay no yeah. no so it was it yeah. was it was live ikea okay and so he had a research fellowship in singapore and invited me out mm-hmm. and somehow we convinced the the people at the Japanese ikea that we should live in their ikea <laughs> and they gave us the the you know when you come up the escalator there's uh-huh. an apartment Yes, and they gave oh, us yeah. they gave us that apartment. Yeah, it's got the bathroom and the yeah. bunk beds yeah. and everything else. So then, <laughs> so then we wandered through IKEA and basically made a a photo studio out of that apartment. Oh man! With uh, yellow IKEA rugs and zip ties, <laughs> and then the lighting equipment that we used was lighting from the lighting department. Oh wow! Uh, and then we built another photo studio at the end so when if you know anything about ikea when you walk into the entrance it's yellow right right uh and when you're shopping you're using a yellow bag Mm -hmm. Uh, and yellow is the color of inside and it's ikea's and then blue is the color of outside so when you exit you exit through a blue blue. exit uh so we had a yellow studio and then we had a blue studio and we had people map how they walked around the store. So we took lack tables and hmm. drew a very crude map of IKEA on on it, and then they tracked oh, how okay. they navigated the thing. And then we interviewed them at the end, and and people usually go to IKEA and and have a list, and then mm-hmm. they leave with yes. much yeah, yeah. much more than they they decided to go there for. Right. <laughs> um, so yeah, so we we lived there, and technically we didn't sleep there. Mm-hmm. But they let us in two hours early and let us stay there two hours late. And we were there for, I think we were there for three days. And wow. it's always it's always 10 a.m. at Ikea, <laughs> right? Like, right. The bright yellow room. And right. the, the mapping part came out of, in the, in the pre-research that I was doing, I was in the lighting department and there was a woman who was sitting at the desk. You know, there's sometimes a person who's yeah. there to help you. They help with the orders, they and, get the ca- catalog and, numbers. Yeah, and what she was doing is she had a very detailed map of the lighting section. And she had multicolored pens and she was constantly drawing like a contour line drawing which was tracking 
people walking through the store. Uh-huh. And like green was a single person, uh, black uh, was a couple. Wow. Uh, red was a couple with children. Pink was a a non-married couple. Oh, wow. Which seems like a judgment call. <laughs> well, I, th- I think they used pink and Singapore is hostile oh, to uh, LGBTQI. Oh, okay. So I think pink was unmarried couple. Right. Uh, oh, okay. Because they would track couples. Right. Yeah. Oh. So, but they had a very detailed thing and they would put X's where if somebody picked up a product and looked at it, and then zeros. Oh my God! If if they <laughs> if they picked it up and put it in their cart, it's such surveillance. It is, oh but my God. you know, you'd think a, a company like IKEA would have a more sophisticated yeah, system. like tracking your phones yeah, or something, yeah, right? But, right. But so this was I I kind of loved it in in terms of like, and they and they do. It things. must be quite a map to look yeah. at at the end oh, of the it's, day. It's beautiful. Yeah. There's some, somewhere on the website, I think there's a video of uh-huh. of somebody. I can I, I I'm happy to send you a sure. link to, <laughs> I'll to link the to drawing. It. Yeah. 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 Oh, that is wild. So what do you have uh, coming up? So the big thing that we're doing is I'm connected to this statewide grant. Mm-hmm. So it's been interesting because, you know, my project partner runs their collegiate recovery program and he's talking to his equals at all of these different colleges and universities. And since I'm attached to this grant, he's been encouraging them to coordinate with me to do site visits. And they're like, what can an artist do for us? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Uh, and he's been really generous in terms of like the, the coffee bike he thought was a terrible idea, but it turns out uh, it's been one of the best things that they've ever done. Right? Recovery roast was seemed like a waste of money, but now we serve recovery roast coffee in the, in the Rands Recovery Clubhouse and we go through almost 20 pounds a week. (laughs) So like, and that's, uh, you know, that program went from three student members to 70. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm not saying that the coffee bike did that, but certainly the coffee bike had raised awareness around the campus and around the country about collegiate recovery. Yeah. Yeah. So the next thing, the, the next thing I do like next month is that Virginia Tech is building a coffee bike and they are an engineering school. There's a faculty in the industrial engineering program that has assigned coffee bike prototypes to 40 students. Oh my God, you're gonna have an electric bike with a... With a uh, who knows yeah. what they're gonna do, but it's really <laughs> exciting. And they're, gonna, they're designing for four different bike platforms. The, the oh, bike wow. that we have for, the, uh, for our current coffee bike, the bike that I'm using for the Narcan bike, which mm-hmm. is an extra cycle bike. Uh, which with a with an electric assist, so they're going to mm-hmm. design around all these different options because different schools are different. Yeah. Uh, uh, Virginia Tech is in Blacksburg; it's all hills, mm-hmm. and our coffee bike weighs, uh, <laughs> you know, eight hundred pounds <laughs> and is almost impossible to go up a hill. Right. But my uh, the Narcan bike is built on a extra cycle with a big Bosch motor mm-hmm. and goes to twenty miles an hour without pedaling, with hardly pedaling. Right, right, so, right. So that's that might be a better fit. Yes, for what they're doing. So <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Once you once you go pedal assist bicycle, I'm not a purist as yeah. a, as a cyclist. I, I don't know if I can ever go back. Right. <laughs> yeah. When you go up a gigantic hill without breaking a sweat, uh, and you can show up to work and, well, and not have to shower. If you're using it for actual. Yeah work and functionality, yeah. not just exercise, why not? Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, that's amazing. 
Well, thank you very much. Yeah, Michael, thank yeah. you so much. Oh, this has been great. And and the panel talk was was amazing. And the work you're doing is just really amazing. I really, yeah. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Yeah, and we've, we finally get to meet. I've, I've known of you for many years. All right, bye, everyone. Hey, bye. Thanks so much. Bye.